0: Just a brief note before we get started. This episode is part of a special series we recorded at the Institute for Energy Law's annual Oil and Gas Conference. Some of the discussion will focus on issues facing the oil and gas industry specifically, but we think all our listeners will learn something of value. We also want to give a special thanks to the Institute for Energy Law for hosting us. Now, on with the show. Welcome everyone to the in-house roundhouse where in-house lawyers, outside counsel, and industry experts gather round to discuss current issues and best practices. I'm your host, Mark Enriquez, a commercial litigator with Womble Bond Dickinson. With me is my producer, Brian Ewing. Our guest today is Gregory Brown, general counsel with Evolution Well Services, a full-service hydraulic fracking company. Gregory is here at the Institute for Energy Law Conference. Um, he just gave a presentation. I also have two of my partners with me, Lisa Rushton, who's a partner in our Raleigh office, as well as Liz, who's been here for the last several. Liz Smith in our Houston office, who has become a regular on the podcast. And I know listeners, we're excited to have you back, Liz. Um, let's start out. Um, Gregory, just tell us a little bit about your background. And I'm really interested in hearing about what Evolution Well Services does.
1: Sure. Thank you, Mark. I'm very happy to be here. I guess my background is probably somewhat similar to what a lot of in-house counsel have sort of experienced. I started off as a young lawyer at a law firm, um, Akin Gump, doing commercial litigation. Um, practiced there for many, many years, <laughs> 14 years. <clears throat> And then transition can can certainly
0: relate to that as a a big firm litigator. Big firm, (laughs) yes. Uh,
1: Then after 14 years there, I moved to another firm, Jackson Walker, here in Houston, Texas, where I spent two years. And then when I was at Jackson Walker, um, I got approached by um, a client of mine for the second time, who wanted me to come in house to work for them. Originally, they wanted me to come work for them when I left Akin Gump. I wasn't ready to do that. They came and approached me again at Jackson Walker. I was a little more interested. We had a very long conversation going for several months. And finally, I decided to make the jump. And then I moved in-house, started doing um, general counsel work for the client. An E&P company, oil and gas exploration and production, uh, which over time has morphed into an electric hydraulic fracturing company. Wow! So um, that's that's my business now. Interesting. <clears throat> so that's a pretty
0: big jump going from large firm litigation to being the only in-house counsel.
1: Definitely. Um, how did
0: Definitely. You tell? I mean, how did you? And I know there's some other people that may be listening that have made that jump or are thinking about making that jump. How would you describe the process and any tips for surviving
1: it? Um, I don't know that there was much of a process on my part um, in trying to make the decision. It was a lot of uh, conversations, uh, finding out what it is that they wanted, what they needed, Uh, a lot of conversations on my end with my family, what did I want, what did I need, Uh, and just sort of getting to the point where I felt comfortable doing it. Because you know how it is, you spend so much time being in a law firm, working so hard, Long days, long nights. Uh, Who walks away from that? Uh, It's true. It's hard uh, to do. (laughs) Without a lot of thought um, going into it. But uh, I did it, and it's been a good decision, I think.
0: Is it true that not billing hours is the best part?
1: (laughs) Not billing hours is is the best part, although surprisingly, I have not been able to get away from legal bills and invoices. Now, instead of sending them out, (laughs) now I have to review them. Ah. Um, and now, instead of <laughs> arguing with clients about my bills, now I argue with lawyers about their mm. bills. So um, that still follows you.
0: You're still doing that peace.
1: Still doing that
2: <laughs> you know, One thing that Mark alluded to, and I, I don't think the audience knows, and I've asked you this before, but you know, are, are you by yourself, or do you have a staff that works with you?
1: I am. I am. I'm the only lawyer currently. I'm um, looking to change that soon. But only lawyer right now. I have uh, an assistant and a paralegal, however help me in a very talented group of outside counsel who I can call upon when I need them. That's awesome.
2: So your kind of pool of outside counsel is who kind of acts as your, your partners, for se, right? It, for it, my, it, I'll call my partners to ask them advice or bounce ideas.
1: Exactly, exactly. They um, um, have worked with me for a long time in a lot of cases. Sometimes it's new relationships. But they all uh, know my situation, know I'm the only in-house counsel, and they're always certainly available for um, advice and counsel, obviously. And then, you know, you have your colleagues who you've developed over the years, you know, your friends and buddies in law firms or who are now in-house at other places who you can feel free to call upon when you need something as well. Mm
0: I think that's good, and and Lisa, I know I appreciate you joining us. Could you just tell tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Um, I don't, you know, and your practice.
2: Sure. Um, <laughs> I, I started out as an environmental uh, attorney at a boutique firm in Florida. After about a year and a half down there, I decided I wanted to move to a bigger city. Moved up to Washington D.C. Joined a international firm in D.C. Was with that firm for. Oh, about four or five years, and it was when I was there that I really uh, moved out of doing compliance counseling into M&A and started picking up uh, a lot more transactional work. And then I jumped over to another large international firm, <laughs> again in D.C., and was at that firm for uh, over 17 years, um, doing huge national, international transactions, uh, doing project development work, uh, environmental counseling. Anything that's really um, transactional related that has an environmental component to it, and that includes lending, borrowing, you know, advising on that, and then also doing some project development work, and just basically anything that touches environmental, including litigation.
0: There you go. And, right. Uh,
2: then I joined yeah. Womble about a year and a half ago, and uh, and it's we're been excited a w- to have wonderful you. Wonderful <laughs> job. Thank
0: you. No, we're we're excited to have you, and it's great experience too to have to have done all all of that. Um, I wanted to go back, Gregory, and talk a little more about the company. It sounds like an interesting evolution. The company you joined in, um, back in 2012 sounds like it's a little different now. How did t- Tell our listeners how that process evolved. How did you end up in the... In the and I want to make sure I understand it. Is it uh, hydraulic fracking or electric fracking? It's, I'm not sure. It's I'm
1: hydraulic gonna- fracturing, but okay. um, most conventional hydraulic fracturing is done using diesel-powered equipment and diesel-powered motors. Just think your traditional okay. diesel mm-hmm. combustion engine. Um, we don't have that at all. We don't use that diesel equipment. Our equipment is 100%. Electric, so we're powered by electric motors. Um, and the way we differentiate ourselves is that our um, equipment is all electric power, and our electricity comes from a jet engine turbine, which we've customized into our own. A unique package so that it's ultra-mobile for the um, oil field. Um, it runs off of field gas, but it can also run off of uh, compressed natural gas, LNG, or any other um, hydrocarbon fluid. Hmm. Um, so it runs off primarily field gas to generate electricity with a generator that's paired with it in the field. That electricity is then sent from the turbine in the generator to electric motors and Each of those electric motors has two electric hydraulic fracturing pumps associated with it. And those pumps uh, receive the electricity uh, from the motor, and they frack the well. Uh, The advantages of this, we like to think, are several. First of all, you get the cost savings and the cost differential between uh, natural gas and diesel. You know, natural gas... Unfortunately, right today, that's a big difference. It's, right? Yeah, it's yeah. really low these days, right. unfortunately, for uh, <laughs> yeah. gas producers. Right. Uh, so you get a big cost savings there between that and diesel. Um, the emissions are much lower. You don't have all that diesel powered equipment. Mm churning up all of those emissions. You know, our jet engine turbine is much cleaner and much more efficient in that regard. Um, you have a smaller footprint. Um, we are able to generate 56,000 horsepower from eight trailers, um, eight pump trailers to get that much from um, conventional equipment. You might need anywhere from 20 to 25 trailers oh wow Um, so
0: that's a yeah that's a substantial
1: you eliminate the diesel so you don't have diesel trucks constantly resupplying um, diesel powered equipment running up and down the roads disturbing uh, neighbors farms uh, being frankly a hazard on the road you know diesel trucks running up and down the road all hours of the day and the night. Emissions. And again, reducing the emissions from them, which are carrying diesel <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to be used right. to generate more emissions. Um, hearing, um, you know, the noise is lower. Um, mm. You don't need hearing protection with the equipment. Our equipment operates roughly at about 80 to 85 decibels. Uh, so you don't need the hearing protection hmm. that you would conventionally. Fewer employees, we can operate with about 12 employees. Conventional equipment, anywhere from twenty to twenty five, so it's cheaper to operate. And the equipment is cheaper to maintain. Um, I like to think of it uh, sort of call us the Tesla of electric of hydraulic yeah. fracturing, you know. That's in great. that regard. And
2: okay, so these it, engines are mobile, right? Are the engines mobile?
1: Yeah, all the engines are, um, all of our equipment is placed on trailers. Mm-hmm. So uh, we can haul it from site to site. We can rig up our equipment probably in about 24 hours. Um, our turbine, which we use, very customized. It's not off the shelf. We've mobed and demobbed it within, you know, 14 hours, as short as, as, short, short as that time period.
2: So you've got a real opportunity with some of the, the, the climate change issues going on right here, and the pressure that we have to it, can kind of control it, our emissions.
1: Exactly. When we first started the company, uh, we received a lot of phone calls from people because we have a calculator on our website saying, you know, we've saved x million gallons of diesel fuel you know since we started Mm -hmm. and that translates to dollars you know depending upon the size of a drilling pad that might be a million dollars per pad you know that operators get to save straight to their bottom line but we found in the past couple of years that we've gotten as many, if not more, calls from people calling about the emissions aspect and wanting to know about the uh, reduced emissions, the greenhouse gas savings. Our clients um, who are big E&P companies, climate change issues and emission issues are becoming increasingly important to them and to their investors, and so they're looking for ways to show their commitment to doing what they can to reduce emissions
2: sure and then it gives them a, a way to also add a little bit more of a positive spin to the fracking that they're doing which can tend to have some some other you know issues it, tagged it, onto it by uh, people that are opposed to it
1: exactly we knew that we were on to something when we saw that one of our clients had basically put us on the front page of their sustainability report mm-hmm. um, another client had us featured on their website you know as they rotated from picture to picture we're like hey the- That's us. Picture number three.
2: (laughs) That's great. That's great.
1: Well, I do. I mean, I think, and that's
0: something we heard at the Specialty Chemical Conference that we recorded. We recorded an episode on sustainability there. And I do think there is this sense that as we enter the next century, there's a focus on more than just bottom line profits. So sustainability really is something that boards are beginning to pay attention to. So I think that, you know, to be able to fill that niche and, and provide something people can talk about and show a commitment to sustainability. And it sounds like you're getting both. You're getting economic advantage and uh, sustainability. So that, that's got some appeal.
2: And it's not just the boards, it's the investors too. Because yes. there's, you know, the green investors that are very, very focused on that. And so if some of the your clients can promote that you're doing this, that also helps them with with their investors and and their finances.
1: Exactly, and I've been sort of amazed, uh, you know, as a lawyer, you know, you just sort of look at things analytically. The law requires this, law requires that, or, you know, you think about bottom line type issues, but this issue is, um, it's everywhere. Mm -hmm. Um, For us, we're not a publicly traded company. We're privately owned. Uh, We have one shareholder. Yes, he cares about the environment, but you know he's not necessarily swayed by activist investors. But as an example, uh, we borrow money. Um, so we have a debt fund that we borrow money from. That debt fund, three of its biggest investors are uh, teachers' pension funds, the Episcopal Church, <laughs> <laughs> and um, Northern European um, sovereign wealth funds, they care about Climate change and sustainability issues, Mm -hmm. and they want to know that they're investing, that their money is being used to invest into uh, responsible investments that aren't necessarily exploiting or use misusing the environment in a wasteful way. That's great.
0: How is how is the oil and gas industry? received it i know you know sometimes there's a mixed reaction to some to innovation or new ideas and you know in many ways the, the industry hasn't changed that much over time has that been a barrier for you the idea of doing something different you know different I, than it always
1: has I, I i think that's true um but that's true i think probably from People in general, you know, we tend to become creatures of habit, and we are used to doing things a certain way. And you're right; the oil and gas industry, you know, at times uh, is cutting edge on certain things from a technological perspective, but from other ways, you know, right. can can be very resistant. Uh, one of the things that we had to do when we first started up the company was basically take our equipment on a roadshow, basically mm. prove to people that yeah. you could you really actually could right. frack a well without diesel-powered equipment. So we literally took it on a road show around the country and to various oil-producing regions to show, yes, you can do this. People were interested, but they didn't want to commit to it until they had actually seen it work. I mean, just think about it, you know, for electric cars. Uh, everyone's interested in them, but can I drive from here to Disney World right. in an electric car? Where am I going to charge it up? You know, I right. want to see it done first.
2: That had to be some interesting early negotiations, though, for you, because you're having these companies trust you with an unknown technology set up and start to Were you actually fracking the
1: well for them? Oh, totally. totally. It (laughs) it, it was interesting negotiations. You know, our sales and marketing team did a good job sort of getting them over the hump. But, you know, I still had issues when I was interfacing with my counterparts on the legal side as we're negotiating the MSAs or whatever the agreements may be. You know, we're very proud of our technology. We have patents around it. So, you know, I insisted on certain things to Mm -hmm. protect our intellectual property rights and you know they're pushing back and I'm like wait a minute you don't understand we're not your traditional hydraulic fracturing company we are totally different and this is why you have to give us this clause or this provision that you don't give to anyone else and Mm -hmm. once you explain to them how the equipment works and what's involved they're like oh oh yeah you're right you you do have something here okay I (laughs) I see why you want this clause in here
0: that is it's interesting, and that's. I was gonna try to transition now that we understand the company, and it's an exciting company. I'm interested in the kind of legal challenges that um, that you face in that industry, and I get. And you just mentioned the intellectual property piece. I imagine that's a challenge because that that is your secret sauce. So you, you've got you've patented the technology. It sounds
1: we, like we have. We <clears throat> have. 50 some odd patents worldwide we have about 80 some odd applications um, pending also worldwide but yeah intellectual property and patents have become a much bigger part of my life than I ever thought they would you know when Mm -hmm. I went to law school I did not have in my head, oh, yeah, I'm going to be doing patent work or dealing with all these intellectual property issues. Um, no, that's not right. something <laughs> I, ever, <laughs> I ever consider. But, uh, uh, right. you know, you got to go where the buffalo are, and you have to change, and you have to adapt.
0: Now, do you do you do any of that internally or use outside firms for that patent work? Or is it how do, how do you handle that volume of, of patents?
1: You know, although I've learned a lot about patents, I haven't learned nearly enough to the point where I'm going to be writing patent applications or anything of that nature. So we certainly do rely on outside firms. But, you know, as any lawyer knows, it's not like you can just turn a project over sure. to a firm or an outside lawyer, you still have to manage and supervise it. You have to learn enough about it to know what's going on so that you can make sure the company's interests are still adequately being represented. Gotcha.
0: Have you had to do with patent litigation as well, or have you uh, not yet entered those exciting waters?
1: No comment.
0: No, okay. <laughs> <laughs>
2: Fair enough. So um, do you all uh, manufacture the equipment and then also do the operation of the equipment, mm, or do you then turn it over?
1: No, good question, good question. All of our equipment... It's customized for us because what we're doing is electric hydraulic fracturing that, frankly, has not ever been done right. before. Uh, there's not a ready supply of equipment you know, out there and available that you can just buy off the shelf and use. So all of our equipment is customized, everything from our jet engine turbine to our electric motors that we have on all of our fleets, It's been totally customized for our use and for our benefit. Um, Basically, trying to package all of the equipment onto one trailer. Um, We've had to customize all of that just so that it will fit for our purposes. So everything is customized for our use. We operate the equipment. uh, We buy parts. We assemble and package it together. But we take it out into the field and we operate it ourselves.
2: Got it. So then you have to cover all? a lot of that with all the different patents for the different for all of
1: it exactly exactly we've got patents on our uh turbine system you know which if you bought it off the shelf originally it comes in you know on five trailers Uh, you can hire um, companies uh, the manufacturer to move it for you Uh, they'll move it in seven days but if you're really I'm sorry in 14 days but if you're really in a rush you can pay them a hundred grand they'll move it in seven days for you which doesn't work in the oil field you know you're having to move you know once or twice a month and you have to be ready to go very quickly so we had to customize our own equipment we've got patents around our motors um, dual shaft motors uh, because our equipment our power density is so much higher than traditional equipment, mm-hmm. 56,000 horsepower on uh, eight trailers, like I said, versus 20 to 25. The right. way we do that is with bigger motors that generate more power and bigger pumps. But to do that and to get them to work together, we had to custom design our mm-hmm. own motor. So we've got patents around that as well.
2: Mm-hmm.
0: Now, this is, this is a... Uh, uh, probably a naive question, but when I picture jet turbines, I'm thinking of you know some, take a, you know clip it off the plane and and put it on a trailer, which is obviously going to generate thrust, right? It's a ramjet. I mean, a t- traditional turbine is generated with the airflow. Does it? I mean, I would think the trailer would go shooting across the <laughs> the oil fields. So that, that's probably the bad concept. Well, I'm sure that's not what's happening. You don't have, the, these trailers aren't flying anywhere. The
1: trailers are but, not flying anywhere, but but the, <laughs> but you, but you, yeah, you, this is, you. I just have to ask. I'm hey, sure. But, but you are somewhat right. The same jet engine, the same turbine that's on a jet engine, is the same turbine that we use on our equipment in the field. Okay. Uh, the thrust is not nearly the same, or it doesn't run at that level that okay. it shoots. <laughs> it fires.
2: Go! Um, the yeah, the turbine it.
1: across across the field. Yeah. You know, we've got Tractor an exhaust. Races, we've right got there. an <laughs> exhaust stack which uh, okay. ch- channels everything to prevent to I prevent gotcha. that. But it is the same aeroderivative okay. type turbine that you would find okay. on a. Southwest plane that you're taking from Houston to Dallas or on a United jet that you're taking from Houston to London.
2: Gotcha. So now, Greg, did you have a technical background before you went into all of this, or Uh, have you just had to (laughs) learn it on Uh, the fly?
1: I was a political science major in college, okay, so um, I think that probably tells you all you need to know about my technical (laughs) background. You know, I was not, um, if there was ever anything complicated that had to be assembled at home, you know, I would turn to my brother uh, because he was the one who was a little bit more mechanically inclined than I I am. Um, I've had to learn a lot of things. I don't pretend to be a master of it at all. But, uh, you know, you ask questions. How does this work? You know, uh, how, <laughs> how is that possible? Plan? You know, Mark's right. question, you know, about <laughs> the jet engine flying. I didn't, I've never asked that question, but, right. Which you know, could, but you, you, be you can't job, be afraid that, to right. ask questions like that <laughs> to find out, well, why does this work or why isn't this a problem? And, and was this
2: a, did it make you nervous going into a very technical company? Without having a technical background, um, as the only general counsel, as the n- only in house. N-
1: no, not really. Um, you know, my management team. You know, we've got the president and our CEO. You know, they're both have engineering backgrounds, but you know they're finance people, they're sales, they're marketing people. They don't necessarily all have technical backgrounds themselves. Um, Granted, a lot of them are more technically advanced than I am, but you ask a question. I mean, you know, as lawyers, you don't know everything about every case that comes before you. So you ask questions. All right, Mr. Expert, explain this to me. How does this work? You know, whether it's mechanical, technical issues or whether it's complicated financial issues Mm -hmm. you know how is it that we're going to make money off of this hedging program that we're trying to put in place inside one of our contracts how does that work for us you know what's the downside what could Mm -hmm. you you ask questions
0: that's great no i'm just i think that's it is it's interesting the learning curve right for the amount of stuff that you've had to that you've had to do in that position um do you have any tips you would offer for someone that may be making the same leap you made of going, you know, from in-house to to doing it yourself? Any any gems of wisdom you'd pass on to those folks?
1: Oh gosh, I, you know, I think as lawyers, uh, we have unique backgrounds that are well suited to a wide variety of tasks in a wide variety of fields and professions. You know, there's some truth to the fact that. Our skills do translate into a lot of different areas. Um, you know, the ability to communicate, the ability to ask questions, to sort of think critically, those are skills that you need uh, in pretty much any job, mm-hmm. um, but especially in the law. But, you know, I, my advice would be ask questions, read. A lot of this stuff, yes, it's new to you, but it's written down somewhere. You know, a lot of these concepts have been around for a long time. You can find out and you can research about them, um, ask questions. I think it's certainly very important that uh, you have relationships inside the company on the management team with the president, you know, the CEO. Um, I had a pre-existing relationship with them because they were my clients um, and I knew them for years. Mm -hmm. Um, So it was certainly useful that they knew me and I knew them. Um, and I think that's certainly important as well.
0: Great. You know, um, obviously evolution is, is, is looking ahead to what makes sense from a climate change standpoint. I'm interested in where you see the future of both your specific area, but maybe even more broadly the whole fracturing you know, industry. What, what do you think is coming in the next five to ten years? Do you guys have, a, have projections there?
1: I don't know that we have projections and I don't know that my crystal ball is any better than anyone else's. But I do think we're going to see an increasing amount of change in a couple of areas. Uh, People are going to have to become more efficient in the way that they do things. Uh, You're going to have to do more with less. You're going to have to be able to do it faster, uh, quicker and better. I do think that climate change issues will be increasingly important. To the energy industry, you know, we're not going to be able to do things the way that we've done them in the past so inefficiently. You look at the Permian um, and all of the gas that's being flared there, you know, because Mm -hmm. it's stranded and it can't get to a marketplace or a place where it can be used efficiently. I don't think that's going to be allowed very much longer. People are going to demand. You just can't keep burning this stuff. You have to find a use for it. So I think that's going to uh, be something that happens. Uh, You know, the investors, I think, are going to continue to demand um, that things change. And whether the government, the federal government, goes along or agrees with it or or not, I think is somewhat irrelevant because the market has spoken or is speaking. Um, They're demanding change. So you can fight against it, but it's going to be like fighting against the tide. are going to have to change.
2: Yeah. And companies like your company are kind of driving technology too. Sure, which, sure. Which, you know, and for the, all the reasons we talked about before, with all of the uh, social pressures, companies like yours will hopefully thrive.
1: Sure. And, and even with my company, you know, I like to think that we've got the best mousetrap out there. But, um, you know, I go back to something from my law firm days. You know, one of my partners says every time, You go to bed at night, you know, somebody else is awake trying to figure out how to steal your client. Um, (laughs) Every time we go to bed, you know, at night at Evolution, you know, someone else is staying awake trying to find a better way to do even what we're doing. Right? You know, there's always competition or there are different ideas and different approaches, um, which there will be competition. So you have to continue to... Uh, forgive the pun, evolve.
0: (laughs) That's great. That's great. Well, and I think that's a good note to to end on. Um, Thank you so much, Gregor, for joining us. I think this was an interesting and informative show. Thank you, too, Lisa and Liz. I appreciate it. I want to remind our listeners that you can find previous episodes of the In-House Roundhouse and subscribe to this podcast at our website, WombleBondDickinson.com, or on iTunes, Google Play, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. If you have questions or comments about this episode or ideas for future topics, please share them with us on LinkedIn or Twitter. Thanks, everyone, for listening. This has been In-House Roundhouse. See you at the next station. In-House Roundhouse is a production of Womble Bond Dickinson. Brian Ewing is our producer and Robert Daughtry is our audio engineer.